I'd like to introduce Dr Ian Rowlands, who's Senior Lecturer and Director of Research at University College London, um, Centre for Publishing. One of his recent projects has been a study of the implications of the Google Generation Research Libraries, funded by the British Library and the JISC, that's the Joint Information Systems <coughs> Committee. And this is what Ian is going to talk to us about today, so welcome Ian. Thank you very much for that introduction, Anne. And uh, can everyone hear me? Right. Um, thanks for the invitation, and it's lovely to see so many people here. And we're talking about a short project which was commissioned by the British Library in JISC back at the beginning of last year. And really they're interested in this notion that there is at least potentially a new generation, we're calling it for the purposes of this project, the Google generation, that's young people born after 1993 who, maybe unlike many of us in this room, were brought up in an immersive, rich, media, interactive culture. Which begins to raise some interesting questions for strategic bodies like the British Library and for JISC about planning for the future. So the notion, our starting point for the, the project was, is there something qualitatively different, quantitatively different about the Google generation? If so, as they migrate through school university and become academics and researchers, what should the British Library be doing in 2017 to, uh, to cope with those, those changes? Now, <clears throat> that all sounds a bit glib, um, and I think I want to say a few words about some of the starting points for this research. This was an idea that was commissioned that arose within the British Library, and it's predicated on the idea that there is something qualitatively different about this new generation. But I think we should see it in another context. Uh, those of us... I, mean, I work in a sort of cross-disciplinary group at UCL with publishers and librarians. And I've noticed over the last two or three years, in certainly at the more popular end of the professional media, that people have been making very extravagant claims about this new generation. Um, and in fact, some of the claims made, they're, they're completely different. These kids are completely off the wall. And actually not unlike some of the inscriptions that one sees in Egyptian tombs from many millennia before Christ. But that notion of something really has, there's been a sea change in the way that, that young people interact with computers and with, with ICTs, certainly there in the popular media. And both, as, certainly in the area of publishing and libraries, I think there's a general insecurity about this new phenomenon of branded search. The Yahoos, the Googles, in a way beginning perhaps to disintermediate us from that value chain between um, information and users. So a bit of insecurity about the, the notion of the power of Google. But there's a longer historical view I think we can take on this as well. Um, those of you who've read Ray Bradbury may remember a book called Fahrenheit 451. So it's written in 1953, and Fahrenheit 451 is the temperature at which paper spontaneously ignites. 
Now, the novel represents a view of the future where all books are restricted, where individuals are hedonistic, where critical thought through reading is outlawed. Now, I'll just read you a, um, a little quote from the book. We're looking forward to a period about now. Picture it, 19th century man with his horses, dogs, carts, slow motion. Then in the 20th century, speed up your camera. Books cut shorter. Condensations. Digests, tabloids. Everything boils down to the gag, the snap ending. Classics cut down to 15-minute radio shows. Then cut again to fill a two-page book review, winding up as a 10 or 12-line dictionary resume. Politics, one column, two sentences and a headline. So this is Bradbury looking forward to a period of, maybe some of us would believe we're in this period now, where um, information has become almost a drug for the masses. So there's also this general sense that's abroad that uh, society's dumbing down, that information culture is dumbing down. And I think that's part of the context behind this notion of Google generation. When we were preparing the... uh, This, by the way, was a a short six-month study. It's really just a grand-clearing exercise, and we've got many more questions than we've got answers. But one of the things that we discovered when we were preparing the proposal was some work at Newcastle. Um, Some psychologists have been doing some work where they actually wired up people's heads and did brain scans while they're playing computer games. And they did this across a range of different age groups, and they found that there were real cognitive and brain differences um, amongst the Google generation compared with perhaps people of my age. They seem to be multitasking, multiprocessing, um, clicking much more much more rapidly. So on the face of it, that's just the sort of thing in research of course confirmatory bias. It's exactly the sort of thing that you, you pick up on. You think, ah, well that, there really is a story here. Now the trouble is, um, that experiment may be quite compelling at this point in time, but unfortunately that experiment didn't take place 15, 20, 30 years ago. So in other words, if there are age-related differences in the way that people use technology, are they real? Will they persist across generations? I'm slightly exaggerating this next next bit of the story, but we were having lunch one day at home, and my daughter, who's 14, 13, Google generation. She was born in 93, one of the older elements of the Google generation. And she said, Dad, these radishes, they're really, really hot. And I looked at Anne and said, well, you should have had radishes when we were young, because they really were hot. They would have blown your head off. Now, the point of that, and I think it's the departure point for the methodology we, we, we moved towards, was the idea that something as simple as an observation by a Google-generation teenager about the, the taste of a radish, is that symptomatic of a real qualitative, quantitative, generational difference that somehow Google-generation teenagers experience radishes differently from uh, older generations, Is it to do with the fact that radishes have changed? Is it to do with the fact that 
my palate and my wife's palate probably have changed and evolved over time as well. And this is the, the real research challenge, and it's really one which we've scarcely been able to um, scratch the surface off of this project because we, we were forced into um, tactics which were really desk-based or limited empirical work. But of course, to do the job properly, we didn't need six months. We needed a time machine. We needed to go back to maybe periods before the digital library, before CD-ROM, before electronic um, media, right back maybe to 1960. And then we would have followed through a, a whole cohort of young people as they went through their schooling, as they went through their uh, higher education and into the research environment. Now, we didn't have a time machine. Um, we're working on it, but uh, it's proving a bit problematic. So we came up with the notion of really the only way we can begin to scope out and tackle this problem is to not do a real longitudinal study, but a virtual one. And so we, we developed a, a research method where the first element was based on a very careful reading of the mostly the library and information literature on the information behaviour of young people. We went right back to 1970. And as we were going through each paper, what we're doing very much was to, at the micro level, to see, is there any indication in this paper that something different was being observed from um, previous research? So trying to build up a picture of whether there was any sense of generational differences, generational shifts over that, um, over that period, and looking at, uh, at the behaviour of young people. So in other words, is there any historical precedent or any historical evidence for, looking, for, for noticing generational, um, generational differences? Now, the second element, and I will label the, the methodology a bit because we didn't make this stuff up. It's, um, it is based on a reasonably robust methodology. Um, for the second part, we also have to understand not whether there are real differences between generations, but also over time, because all of us in the stream are on a very long and, in many, in many ways, a very exciting journey. As we go through our careers, we're faced with new sorts of technology, new sorts of challenge, new applications. And none of us, I think I'm probably fairly safe in saying yes, none of us stay still on that journey. So the second leg of the exercise was to um, take uh, some survey research. We've got uh, a colleague at um, Tennessee called Carol Tenapier. And bless her, for the last 30 years with... Uh, uh, another American academic called Don King. Carol has been um, sending out annual surveys to academics with more or less the same questions now as 30 years ago. And these are exploring issues about how much they read, where they um, locate journal articles that they want to, to look at, and a whole host of other information behaviours. And what she what we did with that, uh, that survey data was to take, us, to take slices, a bit like geological time slices. So we took the, uh, the 30-year-olds from the 1970 survey and the 40-year-olds from the 1980 survey 
and the 40-year-olds from the 2000 survey. So effectively, we're tracking a single cohort of academics as they move through their, um, through their careers. And this gets very multidimensional because as well as the fact they're moving through time and the roles that they're inhabiting are different, they may be moving from being a postdoc fellow through to a head of a research group, so the roles change, but also the information environment in which they find themselves has changed radically. We've moved from early days of um, very simple electronic provision in the form of CD-ROMs through to now fully blown, mature digital libraries. So that was really trying to get some sort of compass bearings on how we adapt, how older people adapt as we move through um, through that time and research space. The final element was we, we actually did some experiments. We looked at um, a website produced by the British Library called British Library Learning. And we looked at another JISC uh, website, a, a portal called Intuite. Now, both of these were uh, are web packages that are aimed at quite a wide variety of ages. Um, they can be used by school kids to help them do their homework, but they're also used by parents, carers, teachers, and grandparents who are maybe supporting the, the children through their, through, their, through their education. So the experiment we did was to take those two platforms over the summer and then look at how people of different ages, literally from... Um, school kids to grandparents, at the same point in time, use the same, um, the same platforms. And in a sense, what we're trying to do here is to see, you know, is there evidence of real age-related differences in the way that, um, that people approach the same content on the same platform? Now, as well as doing this, we're also looking at a lot of um, commercial market research. As you can imagine, um, the demographics of Google generation, teenagers and older people, are of you know, very, very much of great interest to, um, to the market research community. In the States, there's a massive ongoing um, longitudinal study called the Pew Internet Study, where... Um, they're literally doing random telephone polling of the American population of all ages and asking lots of questions about their use of IT and the use of the internet. And the thing that struck us really forcibly right from the beginning of the project was the idea that there's a lot of diversity. Um, I'll give you an example. A market research company called Sinovate did some research earlier this year and they segmented Google generation teenagers into three clusters. One cluster, um, I think they, they thought it was about 15 to 20% of, uh, of this age group, are the sort of people that instigated our project. These are the sort of people that are perpetually texting, mobiling, um, multitasking. The sort of people that um, are very keen on technology, very deeply embedded in 
all sorts of activities around um, around the web and web 2.0. The survey also suggested that the majority, 60% or so, of young people in this teenage bracket were very comfortable using technology, um, didn't tend to push the boundaries very much. They would tend to use the technology probably in much the same way that I'd used it a generation earlier as a, simply a medium for delivering entertainment, for delivering um, some basic educational value. But not really the, you know, the sort of um, deeply wired, deeply um, embedded in the um, internet in the way that perhaps the Google generation hype suggested. And then very interestingly, um, a group which, um, again, sort of 15 to 20% of teenagers who some of had actually labelled digital dissidents, people who were beginning to turn their back on all this technology, people who thought that uh, computers were for dad. So even within this age group, we're seeing lots of variation. Um, and I think one of the, the first messages we, we want to get across is the idea, um, which was... Um, Strengthened when we looked at some research by Ofcom, published again just in time for our report, which was showing that a group that they identified as silver surfers, these were typically people who just taken early retirement from professional jobs and were consuming all manner of services and content across the web and typically spending four hours a week longer than the average Google generation teenager. So diversity is an issue. And I think one of the things that we've, um, one of the points we wanted to make was that it's very dangerous to simply stereotype a whole generation, give it a label, put it to one side and say, we'll deal with you in 2017 when you hit the British Library. It's not that simple. And indeed, much of the other work that we've been doing at UCL suggests that there is a lot of variation in the way that people use ICTs. We found gender differences, we found nationality differences. So there's an issue about uh, about diversity in labelling. Um, there's also an issue about the speed and the extent to which older generations seem to catch up and in some cases actually overtake Google generation in terms of the, their use of IT and the internet. And I guess many of the people in this room will have the sorts of jobs that, like me, where really your ability to even keep your head above water in our careers depends on being flexible, being able to, uh, you know, as and where necessary, to invest time and effort learning new, new applications. You know, even though dinosaurs like me will spend time, my own time, learning things like XML if I think it's worth the, worth the investment in my career. So the first two sets of keywords, I think, are, first of all, a notion of continuity. Um, that, okay, uh, there's diversity in populations in respect to the use of the internet. We've maybe, as librarians, not thought too deeply about that notion of segmenting our users according to 
behavioural types, but we can certainly see it in the micro-research literature. And the idea also that you can't write off the older generation, the pre-Google generation, because we show remarkable resilience and remarkable ability to, to cope with change. Now, the, we were really charged in this project with as much with um, kicking up a bit of a fuss and causing a bit of um, trying to spark some discussion in the community as um, providing fact. And I think the area I'd like to touch on next is the area of information literacy, which is certainly um, very much at the core of what uh, many librarians believe. And certainly here at the OU, we're seeing lots of activities in this area. The worrying thing for some of us is that um, there's research to back this up from OCLC, that the primary brand that young people associate with the library is print and print legacy. The primary brand they associate with search is Google and Yahoo. And it's a very, very strong and deeply held brand conviction. 89% of college students in the States use search engines to begin their information research, while only 2% start from a library website. So this notion of Google, Yahoo being deeply branded as search and library being deeply branded as print legacy is something which I think we need to start to think about. We probably need to start thinking of ways in which we can close that, that gap. Now, of course, when we were looking at the literature, right back to 1970, we were very interested in the notion of information literacy. How effective were young people, or are young people, in using the sorts of library retrieval tools that, um, that we, we offer them? And the, if I give you a sort of a brief snapshot of where I think the literature on young people today is, it would have some of the following elements. We can look at click speeds. When people, when young people are using um, either library websites or um, commercial websites. Internet research shows that the speed of young people's web searching means that little time, very little time, is spent evaluating information either for relevance, accuracy or authority. So there's a sense of rapid, rapid clicks and little real thought amongst the under-16 age group as to the accuracy, quality of what they're looking at. Young people have a poor understanding of their information needs, find it difficult to articulate information needs and understand them in a way that they can translate into even an effective Google search. That's quite a high-level order skill, being able to express um, and understand one's information needs. As a result, they tend to show a strong preference for natural language, so searching by putting sentences into Google or a web engine, rather than thought-through keywords. 
faced with a long list of search output, they find it difficult to assess the relevance and will often end up going back, repeating a search again until they get what they think they want. Now, that's a rather oblique picture, but it's uh, certainly borne out by research in the information management literature. But the interesting thing is, the picture hasn't changed at all. That's exactly the picture that one could extract from the literature as it reflected young people's use of CD-ROM or young people's use of early database systems. Now, it's actually very difficult for us to say, you know, what is different about the Google generation? Um, There are some signs we think they're probably better at multitasking, but only time will tell. Will they be as good at multitasking when they're my age as they are now? That's a question that will, will remain open. They seem to show a preference for visual information retrieval over text information retrieval. And that's maybe another thing that we ought to consider as library and members of the publishing community. But there is a really big difference between the situation now and the situation even five, ten years ago. And I go back to that notion of Google being the primary brand associated with search, library being the brand associated with, with print legacy. And there's been some very interesting research done on the mental maps of young people. How do they understand the internet? Now, I guess many of us in this room are not all absolutely clear what the structure of the internet is. We know it's a, a network. We know that different nodes in our network are loading content independently. But some of the research on mental mapping showed that very young children, sort of 10 or below, had a very unsophisticated mental map. They believed that Google was a box, a bit like a you know a big warehouse that you might see as you drive down the down the motorway, into which content was poured, and that content again because of the power of the brand, they thought was Google. They had no no conception of the internet as an interconnected web of independent materials. So there's something interesting there about how mental maps may not be keeping up with um, reality. Now, quite independently of the Google Generation study, we've for the last five years, we've been at UCL running a program called the Virtual Scholar. We're interested in how people in this room, librarians, researchers, academics and students, how they use digital libraries. Okay? And the technique we've been using to um, evaluate that use has been something called deep log analysis. Now, I don't know whether you realise, but every time you, you do a session on a platform like Elsevier Science Direct, or indeed any other publishing platform, that you'll leave an electronic trace behind you. Okay? So... We'll know the logs will, computer logs in the background will be recording how long you were there. Possibly um, how you got there. Did you get there through Google? Did you get there through a bookmark? 
Um, what did you do while you were in that digital library? Did you spend lots of time there doing lots of deep research? Did you just flick through pages? And so on and so on. So we can build up a really detailed, we have built up a really detailed picture of how people actually behave in a digital library. Not what they say in surveys, not what they think they remember afterwards, what they're actually doing while they're in that digital library. And we are in a dilemma, um, to be quite honest. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that information literacy has gone out the window across the whole of academia. But there are some very worrying signs. And I might just characterise um, information behaviour in the virtual library as follows. We're seeing lots of what we call horizontal information seeking. In other words, people don't, on the whole, there are, obviously there are people that do this, but on the whole, people tend to skim horizontally through digital libraries rather than going down deep into the, into the innards. Around 60% of users of electronic journals view no more than three pages, and a vast majority, two-thirds, never come back to that site again. Looking at uh, the use of electronic book platforms, we've seen very interesting patterns where people seem to spend more time looking around in the shop than they do viewing content. Okay, it's like they're wandering around the shop, but they spend very, most of the time just wandering around looking at navigation, looking at um, tables of contents. Very little time, indeed, spent actually looking at the content itself. I could go on and on, but the picture that we're beginning to build up is that whatever people are doing in the digital library, it ain't what we thought they would do when we designed the systems. And in fact, um, whether you're a pessimist or a, an optimist is quite interesting on this point because um, we've got two hypotheses. One hypothesis is that research behaviour is really dumbing down, that people are finding it very difficult to find their way around the electronic maze of most digital libraries. They're flicking through at enormous speed. They don't seem to be... that Very few people use advanced search in logic, all the things that I was brought up to believe and cherish. So is that bad? Is that uh, a sign that uh, we are seeing massive failure at the library terminal? Is it a sign that we're seeing a dumbing down in research skills from first-year undergraduates through to learned professors? Or is it, um, and we begin to play with the notion of power the notion of power browsing. Is it that actually our users are much, much smarter than that would give them credit for? And what they're doing is rapidly moving horizontally through metadata, through titles, through abstracts. And we know that abstracts are now exceptionally powerful in this digital environment despite the fact that a few years ago people thought as soon as we went full text the abstract would disappear. In fact, the abstract now is so popular that we've suggested to Elsevier 
that they should give away the full text and sell the abstracts. Electronic books are moving very much more towards the notion of chapters being like journal articles and each chapter beginning with a summary. And it's proving very popular. So is it that research skills are dumbing down or is it that we're actually developing a whole new form of online reading which is based on, paradoxically, all these tools like metadata and abstracts that librarians and um, publishers created to help people find the full text. We don't know the answer to that question, and it won't be as simple as a black and white answer, but we are beginning to feel that um, something new is emerging in the way that people read uh, online materials. And the point there is that that's these sorts of very shallow apparently shallow research behaviours, we can observe right across the spectrum from learned professors at Cambridge to undergraduates in their first year. Now, I'm going to go back to mental maps again because it seems to me that when I, certainly when I was growing up, I spent a lot of time, as many of us did, in the local library, the public library. Um, used to go there to do my homework. I used to go there to um, follow up hobbies. And one had a sense, a very real physical sense, of the, the library, the physical library, being an interconnected system. You had a sense that there were, there were catalogues and there were microfiche devices, and that the whole thing was like an organism, an information organism, and you could comprehend the totality of that, that system. And as you look across here, you see that different formats look differently. So journals and official statistics look different. Fiction looks different. It's in a different place from other parts of the collection. So you could have literally a very strong mental map of the information universe as exemplified through a library. Now, roll this on now to 2008, where we know, you know this, that many users in, of your faculty will very rarely, if ever, visit the physical library, but they will visit the electronic provision that you, that you make. And going back to the idea of kids having um, an unformed mental map of Google, what worries me now, because I've lost this, I've now lost the mental map of the electronic provision that is made at UCL. It is now so complex. Um, if I go to UCL, the library homepage will take me either to electronic books, to electronic journals, or to databases. And I've really got no idea any longer what's there. Okay, so one of the things that worries me is that, and I know this certainly talking to our students, there is remarkable ignorance about what actually is in the virtual library. UCL from October this year, we're moving, we've pretty well abandoned print <coughs> subscriptions to journals. 
Okay, so that's that's now pretty well pretty well vanished. We've got to find ways to bring that mental map, that clarity back into people's understanding. And I think finally to um, carry on thinking about information literacy, there was a very interesting piece of research published in January this year in the journal Library and Information Science Research. And this was work that had been done at Florida State University. Now I know that the American system is different and we should be very cautious about learning direct lessons from what happens in state universities uh, across the pond. But this is interesting. Um, What the study did was to administer uh, a test, an information skills test on freshmen as they came into uh, their first year at Florida State. So they asked some questions about how, you know, did they understand libraries? What were, the, what were their information skills? There was quite a diversity of um, attainment on that, that test, that information skills test. Some of the students did really well. You know, these are people that really knew how to use a library. They were very, um, very good at evaluating different sources. They were, you know, they were very streetwise in the way they used libraries. And the top quartile of that distribution, the people who'd done the, the best in the information skills tests, went on at the end of the first semester to get the best grades. There was a very strong correlation between their ability to use and navigate um, information and the grades that come out at the other end. Now, the bottom quartile were very interesting. Um, what the researchers did was that as soon as they finished the, the test, they immediately asked the kids how they thought they'd done. The people at the top thought they'd done really well, and they had. The people at the bottom had done appallingly badly, but they thought they'd done really well. Okay, so hang on to that one for a moment. But these are the kids that go on to get the the worst grades. The researchers also also asked them some other questions about, um, you know, where they'd learned about libraries. Was it at home? Did they have um, formal tuition in library schools at school? You know, how did did it happen? And it's pretty clear that the... um, those at the, the bottom, rather those at the top end, had been exposed to what we would probably hear called information literacy training in one form or another, really quite early on in their school lives. Those at the other end had done, they'd really got through their whole lives just coping with Google or Wikipedia. And that's something we can all do. We can all cope, we can all hide the paper over the cracks very easily using those sort of simple tools. So two things coming out of that research. First of all, the idea that information literacy might actually be bound in some way to grade outcomes, to actual performance in public examinations. Secondly, the idea that um, unless you intervene and intervene early, then it's simply too late and people will evolve coping mechanisms 
what old-fashioned librarians like me would call bad habits, like relying uncritically on things like Wikipedia and, um, and Google. So really, just to, just to wrap up, I'm sure there'll be some questions. Um, it isn't helpful to, in my view, to isolate the Google generation and think they're different from us. They're not. There's a continuum. Within the Google generation, there is diversity of personality types, propensities for research, and we as librarians and publishers, I think, need to get a better handle on that diversity. You can't imagine Tesco's or Sainsbury's or one of the big insurance companies treating all its customers as one homogenous blob. Some of the behaviour that we're observing in cyberspace seems to us to certainly raise some issues about not just the ability of Google generation teenagers, but of learned professors to really use ICT effectively. And another big issue, I think, for all of us as faculty, librarians and students is that we need to somehow bring back or, or re-embed some mental map of the information universe. Because as we move this stuff behind the screen, it gets more and more difficult for us all to understand what's going on. Finally, we've got to start reconnecting, we've got to start taking information skills training more seriously, especially if it is bound to positive outcomes in people's education. Now, lots of questions there, lots of issues that we really don't understand that we need much more research on. Every, everybody says this, certainly we need more research, but we urgently need more research. And we're currently talking to the British Library about instituting a real longitudinal study where we would take freshmen coming into the system in 2008, <clears throat> who, by the way, are just the, the butt end of Generation Y, the generation before Google Generation. Um, we're going to try to track those people over the next five years and see what happens. That will at least be a real benchmark for any future studies of the Google generation. Um, the report, we've, we've done a 40-page executive report um, on this study, which um, is, you can, well, uh, maybe Anne could um, distribute afterwards, but we've, it's up on the British Library website, the GISC website, and... <coughs> the cyber website at UCL. So just simply Google Google Generation and Cyber and you should find the um, find the papers. It's a really interesting project, very frustrating to only have six months to do little more than assemble what we think we know, what we know we definitely don't because it's getting rather Rumsfeldian. What you know we've we've not had time to dig, but some interesting stuff here, and I very much welcome any feedback or thoughts from the audience. It's really interesting, thank you. Um, I'm 
just wondering, thinking about what you've been saying about changes in information-seeking behaviour, you know, you're saying it's everybody undergraduates, professors, youngsters. Um, have you looked at the context for that? I mean, it seems to me that it's hard to actually divorce what people do with information from the sort of broader context of their, of their learning and teaching. So did you look at all at the link between changes in the education system, changes in the whole sort of learning and teaching environment and how that might impact on change in the way people behave with information? We haven't, but we've got a simply because the study was too too small and too constrained. But um, one of my colleagues is working at the moment on a proposal to the ESRC, which would be very much looking at because <clears throat> what we've we've never really done properly, we've done it in a limited obs- observational sense, is to actually look at log sessions in the context of what people were doing. You know, was it? going in there checking facts or was it going in there for research what, what, what purposes so we're trying to move into that area partly to get more of an understanding of what online reading actually means <coughs> see one of the problems is that um, it is now possible through the logs to you know, just to see that person was on that page for 1.2 seconds they came in from Google they did three clicks and then they went out into we couldn't do this before so whether we're observing something really new or something that we simply couldn't observe and can't observe in the real environment is a is the big question. But yeah, I mean there's you know, there's so much research. There's so much research that must be done in this area. Just to go back to your comment on people searching and viewing maybe no more than three pages on of a, an article or when, they, when they're searching on library sites um, do you have data to find out whether they then printed, downloaded, that kind of thing because if I think of my own personal behaviour by reading the abstract on the first couple of pages I usually know whether that article is one that I want to spend time on or not and I will either print it, download it or just make a note of it in some system be that my social bookmark or my you know, ref works that kind of thing So, well obviously people are using the digital library in the way that you're suggesting, which is basically a network photocopier. You know, that's exactly what I do. You know, I'll, maybe I'll do a search in PubMed, drop into Science Direct, and I'll just print. But or maybe download. Now, there's an issue. There's. I'll talk about that a bit later on. The the act of printing, the act of downloading, does that is that significant? Because the, um, one of the problems we've got with measuring library activity is that the, the download is the gold standard. Now, you've done what I've done, and not what you one has done, which is to take papers over the weekend and bring them back on Monday morning, briefcase unopened. So we, we're, trying to get, we're trying to think, is there a way we can, we can um, understand what people are doing with prints and downloads? But pull that to one side... Um, we can tell whether people are it depends on the platform um, whether people are downloading or printing but even you know that, that's still quite a minority and still people are spending like, typically three minutes per session on you know, a very sophisticated platform like Elsevier Direct and as far as we can see getting nothing out of it except they pass their eyeballs would have flown abstracts metadata and keywords 
And I suppose the question we're posing is, is that enough? Maybe the health system is so dysfunctional and so inefficient that people are using this power browsing, power scanning, as a way to get what they want. Well, I've got a colleague um, in um, the medical department who says the trouble is with um, library full text. He works in malaria and he looks at the genetic basis of malaria and he says there's about 800 papers a year on malaria and the genetics of it and they all start malaria is an insect borne disease of hot countries and they all repeat a lot of the same context a lot of the same antecedents they say well I just, I just can't stand this stuff anymore I just want the what is new in this paper you know, new fact, give me something that entertains me. And I think there's a, maybe an element, potentially, that uh, the whole system actually is dysfunctional. That people are trying to find ways to make more efficient use of these great corpora of um, materials. But we need to know, we need to understand more about downloading and um, subsequent use for sure. I was just going to add a footnote to that because there is a study from I think about 10 years ago from memory serves somebody called Cosmo who looked at expert um, physicists and already then decided that that's what they were doing so it's not exactly a new phenomenon but because there is so much repeated in, in journal articles they were they developed very very fast very effective scanning techniques and that was part of their success yes so it's not yeah. actually a new um, technique, it's just new kind of information that they're scanning perhaps. But I suppose with the advent of really large scale text databases like such so it's going to be more possible for more people to do this. Yeah. It will certainly speed things up. Um, the, the colleague in question in malaria has come up with the idea that um, rather than trying to keep up to date with the literature by reading it, um, he came up with the idea that as new materials were published on malaria research He'd have an automatic filter that said if there was any new occurrence or co-occurrence of concepts that hadn't been associated before. It's just looking for keywords. If there's any new combination of keywords in this new paper. If it was, if there was, it pops up into a blog and is discussed by um, a panel of malaria experts who then will read the paper and say, well, what was new about that paper? And then feed that new fact into or new facts into a, into a new database so I thought it was really interesting um, I was intrigued that you used the phrase uh, digital dissident and I, this is like a rebranding of Luddites which uh, I'm, I'm quite pleased with I can feel good about being a digital dissident um, yeah. The issue of multitasking, which you, I think you extolled as a virtue. Now, I can multitask, but if I'm honest, I only ever really do one thing well, or probably a whole bunch of things not very well. And I just don't believe that young people are able to multitask and do a whole load of things well. I, I just don't believe it. In the limited context of um, computer gaming, which is a very limited context... Um, this research, I think, I think it was Newcastle, did seem to suggest that they were they're more adept within that limited space 
of doing more things than maybe someone of our generation could. I'm, I'm not, I hope I didn't impute too much value on the, the notion of um, multitasking. Um, I don't know what do other people feel that uh, I mean we're sort of being forced into it simply by the pressure and pace of pace of life. Well, I'll illustrate it with an example from, from my own experience, my own, my own recent experience. I went to a scientific conference uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, it was a big old-fashioned uh, uh, lecture room. And I was sitting at the back, so I could see 200 people sitting in this room. Uh, a, a good 25 to 50 percent of whom had laptops switched on. Yeah. And because it was a darkened room, one could actually see what they were doing. And uh, I, I just think people are sitting in there not taking any notice of what's going on in the, in the hall. Oh. Maybe that's what standard university lectures look like now, but yeah. of course I, I don't experience that working at the other yeah. Interesting thoughts. Just an additional small thought on that. I was very intrigued by the fact you're not using PowerPoint. Because actually I find it quite difficult if someone puts six bullet points up on the screen and then tries to explain something about them. It can be quite difficult to divide your attention even on that. Um, I've moved away entirely from bullet points. I think that this is one of the problems of our age. We're bullet pointing complex ideas into... Well, that's where I came from, that starting point with... Um, um, Ray Bradbury, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's quite dangerous. You lose so much reflexivity by doing this. And also, to be frank, I get fed up with it because um, some t- it, you, you tend to get, if you're not careful, you don't, you've got the script, the script rolls, regardless of the body language of the, of the audience. And there's nothing more embarrassing than trying to flick through quickly because you're going, you know, you, in real mode you can, you can adjust. I mean, maybe very badly, but at least you can adjust and um, um, get that PowerPoint. Thank you very much for the talk. Thank you for